Welcome again to the Strange Brew Podcast. My name's Jason Barnard, and that was The Searchers and Needles and Pins from 1967 live in Sweden. And that's because I've got long-time Searchers based here. The legendary Frank Allen here. A huge welcome, Frank. Good to be on the program. I wanted to um, cover that off the 67 version because I, I don't know if people will know this, but you were a, a latecomer, 1964, to The, the Searchers. So... Um, didn't play on the single version of Needles and Pins. Do you remember going over to Sweden in that period and, and what it was like? Yeah, we used to do it loads of times. It wasn't one of our regular venues. Mostly we were doing the folk parks, but some kind of like uh, pop and rock clubs. And I remember doing the uh, live sessions. I, I can't remember the name of the DJ, but he was actually a, a good friend of Chris Curtis's. Um, they were great pals. So I think when we went back without Chris, I don't think he was quite enamored of the situation. And... Uh, it was all a bit funny for us at that time, but uh, I love the country. I always enjoyed going there. I've spoken to a number of um, musicians that played on ABBA's records, and obviously they cut their teeth in those folk parks in Sweden and uh, really big and, and popular at the time and were an integral part of the music scene. So it was interesting to hear that uh, the searches are also were on that circuit. Yeah, we uh, toured the country. It was a strange situation. We, we They used to give us uh, an American car, with the trailer out the back, because in those days we had very, very little equipment and we would use the PA system that was set up at the venue. And we were just, 
It was quite glamorous, really, traveling in an American station wagon. Um, our own driver supplied this great. I believe we also did, it might have been before I was with them, because I don't actually remember it, but we did shows out there with um, one of the groups. I don't think it was the group that Bjorn was with. I think it was whoever Benny was with. I think it was the Hootenanny Singers. I'm not sure. Yeah. But uh, yeah, we used to running across those people all the time. Fabulous. Your recollection of the era and on your life in a number of books, but including the, the excellent book, uh, The Search for Me, A History of the Legendary 60s Hitmakers by Your Good Self is a brilliant recollection of uh, what were incredible times in music. Yeah, thanks a lot. It was a very enjoyable thing for me to do. I did it without virtually anyone knowing. I think the only person I told was Wendy Burton, who handled our website. She was, she was the liaison person on the website. And uh, I wanted her to help me in going to the um, newspaper libraries and things like that and taking down the date sheets and having things printed off for me. I had a lot of diaries and I had a lot of old memorabilia that, that gave me a night. You know, I remembered an awful lot of what happened, but to get as much as I could into that book, because I wanted it to be the definitive biography, didn't want to miss out any facts that I could get a hold of. So Wendy helped and put them into timelines for me. And I spent four years doing it. I mean, the, the, the book I had out before that, which was Traveling Man, which was as much a book of humor as it was about biography, that took me six months because I was given a six-month deadline because I actually didn't know if I could write a book at that time. So I thought, well, I'll write what I think will be okay, what will, what will compile a decent book to read. So that got great reviews. But then people would say, oh, gosh, when are you going to write the proper biography? Meaning all of those, the minutiae of our traveling years and the ins and outs and things. And so I, I suddenly one day I thought, well, I, if someone's going to do it, I should, and I'm, if I want to be a writer, I really should take this on board. And I did. It took me four years. It's been the most satisfying thing I've ever done. And that's included making records. One thing that it does cover, not only were you a member of the Searchers, but another pivotal band of the 60s, Cliff Bennett and the Rebel Rousers. But you originally joined on, was it rhythm guitar? So it wasn't bass originally. That's right. 1961, mid-1961, rhythm guitar to join the what I thought was the best band in the country, without a doubt. This was my university education in being in a pop brand. I actually saw them round about 59. They were a semi-pro band, and Cliff was playing rhythm guitar. Sid, the sax player, was on piano at that time. We had Ricky Winter on drums. I was taken to see them by a, a guitarist in my band, taken to see them in uh, Ickenham, which is not far from where I live now. But the minute I saw them, I thought they were just absolutely amazing. I couldn't believe that a, a semi-pro band could play like that and Cliff could sing like that. And I palled up with them after the, the show they did that night, made friends, went to see them every time I could, became pals of theirs, went uptown on Saturday mornings to look around the music shops and things like that. And it was just, I wanted to be in that band. That was the thing. That was my ambition, to be a rebel rouser. And eventually I bombarded Cliff into believing he needed me. It was a very strange thing, actually, because the guy that took me to see them eventually joined the band as a rhythm oh. guitarist. His name was Brian St. George, and uh, he became a rhythm guitarist, and then he got fed up with them because they were 
you know, they were quite a ruthless band in their sarcasm and their wit. So he wanted to leave. He came around to me and says, you've always wanted to join the band. Why don't you take over the payments on my Fender Stratocaster and tell them you want the job? So I thought, great idea. Got onto them. They didn't want a rhythm guitarist. They were going to carry on as a five-piece, I think, at that time, instead of a six-piece. And so I had to accept that the job wasn't mine. But about a week later, Cliff phoned me up and said we'd been booked for our first appearance on Saturday Club, which was the important radio show for... The Brian Matthew. Brian Matthew, yeah. Brian St. George, who was the guy who'd put me in touch with Cliff, isn't in the band now, and we booked for six people. Would you come and be Brian for the day just for this recording? So I said, yes, certainly. So on the day, Cliff picked me up in the uh, my parents' house, and it is a nice gleaming sunbeam rapier, took me up to London. The rest of them travelled up in the transit van from wherever they were starting out. And between my place and the Playhouse Theatre in uh, Charing Cross, I just went hell for leather at convincing him that he wanted me into the band, not just as a rhythm guitarist, but as a harmony singer as well. And by the time we got to the other end, I convinced him, and that was my job done because, you know, whatever he said went in that band. So... By the end of the day, I was a rebel rouser. The rebel rousers. Is it right that you were signed to Parlophone before the Beatles? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we were signed to Parlophone, and um, we were always on Parlophone. Yeah, we started recording in 1961. The first single was "You Got What I Like." We uh, were with Joe Meek at that time. We were recording in his studios at Holloway Road. We made, I think, four singles with Joe Meek. All those came out on Parlophone, but they were removed from Joe and put under the auspices of John Burgess at EMI. John Burgess was producing Adam Faith and people like that at the John Barry 7. And um, he produced the next two records that I was on before I left and joined the searches. But always on Parlophone, yeah. Beatles didn't put their first release out till what was it, autumn of 62, I think. And a lot said about Joe Meek, um, a genius, but very idiosyncratic and a quite defined sound as well to many of those records. What were your memories of working with Joe? Well, he was a very sensitive song, quite unusual. The Rebel Rousers were working class lads who just were a bit wild in their behaviour. We used to play up during the recordings and we, we would have Joe fit to die and he had to leave the the control room several times, they'd go into another room and have a cry and then he'd come back and try and get us under control again. I never really got to know him more than that. He was very kind of remote. And his recording technique, well, he was good in lots of ways. He he was good for people like Hines and for um, John Layton and such people like that who didn't have any great vocal talents as, as such. But he would give them hit records. He would he would supply a sound, very simple, usually of a song he'd written, and he'd turn it into a hit record. With Cliff Bennett, he did get a, an okay sound, was a bit too formulated for Cliff. It didn't really give him the leeway to be the rhythm and blues singer that he really was. So I don't think he was the right person for Cliff. And it was good that he got on to John Burgess and Parlophone eventually. You've really got a hold of me with that with, with John Burgess. I think the two that I recorded under under John Burgess's auspices were got my mojo working and really got a hold of me.
just like the Beatles with uh, the Rebel Rousers, you went over to Hamburg as well, and you played a lot over there, didn't you? Well, only, yeah, about three three seasons we did in Hamburg. The first time we went was very soon after it opened. That was, in, I think it was in either June or July of 62. Band went down really, really well there. It was, it was fabulous. So they booked us to come back again at the end of December 62. They, they were the first nights that we met the Beatles. It was the, we saw their last night in Hamburg. They saw our first night in Hamburg. And that's where I had my incredible, notorious run-in, well, it wasn't kind of run-in, unusual meeting with John Lennon, shall I say, which I assume you want to hear about now. Yeah, he's got quite an acerbic wit. Yeah, I kind of knew that he he had that sort of attitude, but I wasn't used to anything like this. But anyway, we, we flew over there. We got in very late. We missed our first night because it was that time when the snow came down like you wouldn't believe it. Heathrow Airport was shut for a good few hours, so we never got there in time to do our first night. We did our second night there, and that was the same night that the Beatles did their last night. The next day, they were flying back home. I came, I was in the afternoon, I came into the club and wandered backstage, and as I was wandering in, Lennon came out. I introduced myself and said, I really enjoyed the show last night, and I hear you got a new single coming out, and I wish you all the best with it. And he kind of looked at me, you know, the eyes narrowed, and you begin to get a bit quaky there. And he said, oh, yeah, Frank, isn't it? Yeah, I enjoyed your show as well. I've been talking to people in the club, and it seems like next to Cliff in the band, you were the most popular member. I don't know why. Your harmonies are fucking ridiculous. I stood there, because I didn't quite know how to take this. I thought, am I being insulted, or this is this livable humour? In fact, it's probably a bit of both. So yeah. I just said to him, well, anyway, really nice meeting you, John, and uh, good luck with the new single. He said, yeah, great meeting you, Frank. See you again. Bye now. And he was he was fine. He wandered out. I don't know how else I could have turned that round, but it was interesting meeting you were there in the audience for at least one of those performances that was recorded for the Beatles that played at Star Club. Yeah, I listened to them the next day. The next day, as soon as Lennon left the club at that time, when I came in, King Size Taylor was already backstage. Lennon left and King Size was on the stage listening to the speakers on the side. There was a, a tape recorder there and he was playing back recordings that he had made of the Beatles the night before. So we were listening to them in the club. I don't remember anything particularly about it. It was just a crappy old tape recorder and crappy recordings. But, you know, I was there at that historic moment. And while we were listening to those, Horst Fascher came into the club. He was the manager and one of the co-founders of the club. And um, he brought in a demo. Lennon had given him an acetate of their new single, which was about to be released. This was at the beginning of 63, uh, as soon as they got home. And it was Please Please Me. And he put it on, they had. They played it over the tannoy, over the club. And unlike Love Me Do, which was an okay record, but it wasn't going to set the world alight and didn't really throw off, it was okay. Please, please me. The minute it came on, I thought, that is a hit record if ever I heard one. From those opening stanzas, it was just brilliant. And you, you knew that they were going to be a success. I did not see what they would become. I can't stand here and say I knew there was going to be the Beatles were going to take over the world. Didn't seem like that at all. Who would ever have thought Epstein said they're going to become bigger than Elvis? I thought Epstein was mad saying that. He was right. 
Oh, I didn't have the foresight. In your book as well, Pete Townsend writes about the influences in you and, and the rebel rousers, and they were one of his key influences, and he really looked up to you. I thought Pete Townsend's foreword was better than the book. It's the best part of the book, I think. I mean, I can't, I can't read it often again now, because it's like a love letter. It's absolutely amazing. I couldn't believe he wrote that, because I had two forewords. One was from Bruce Welsh, who wrote this amusing little paragraph. There's nothing about the book in it whatsoever, and, and nothing to recommend it or otherwise. It's just a jokey little thing, which is what Bruce says. You get to Pete Townsend's, it's two pages of just compliments coming. Oh, amazing. And I, I always got to thank Pete so much for that because he, he was a great guy. And I used to go and watch him when he was in the, when they had the detours at the Oldfield Hotel. And I remember him coming up to me one night at, or before they'd made anything at all and saying, God, you just joined the searchers. What's it like being in a, in a band in the charts and all that? And I made some flippant remark, I'm sure, but no, Pete was great. I'll always be grateful for everything he said. But yes, I think every band, particularly in the London area, was a fan of the Rebel Rousers. I don't know any band that wouldn't have been. It was a great band. We've now got One Way Loves by Cliff Bennett and the Rebel Rousers. And the ironic thing is, is that you left the Rebel Rousers just before they entered the charts. That's right, isn't it? That's right, yeah. I was having dinner with Chris Curtis in London at a restaurant called Antonio's in Cranbourne Street. And it was a flamenco place where you have dinner and there's flamenco dancers. And I tell you, while you're eating, a little flamenco goes a bloody long way, clacking for about 10 minutes. Anyway, we were chatting away and he suddenly sort of announced that they weren't getting on with Tony and that there was going to have a change in the band. I said nothing because I kind of felt what was coming. And then he said, but I suppose you're happy with Cliff, you know, are you? I said, well... We'd just been signed by Brian Epstein, and I'd feel bad about rocking the boat. And uh, Chris said to me, well, well, knowing Brian, I think it might have some effect. I don't really know. So we didn't say anything more about it. And about a week or two later, I was walking down the street in Ireland. We were booked for a, about a week's touring in Ireland. And I was walking down uh, some little village high street with our one of our sax players, a guy called Moss Groves. And for whatever reason, I hadn't told the rest of the band, and I suddenly told him of this offer. He stopped in his tracks. He turned to me. He said, you've told me you've turned down a job with one of the biggest bands, not only in the country, but in, in the States now. He said, don't be so bloody stupid. Get back on the phone. Tell him you want the job and ask him if they want a sax player as well. <laughs> and, the, and I thought after this, oh, gosh, he's got a point. Am I being silly? So I got in touch with Cliff. With sorry, with Chris from Ireland, I said, "Well, if it's still open, you know, I'll uh, accept the offer." So I left the band. I was waiting for the uh, time to join the Searchers. I had about a two-week layoff. In fact, in the end, it got brought forward a bit because Tony was all escaped in the news. But I wandered into the Rebel Rousers' usual rehearsal place in West Strait. We used to rehearse every Thursday, I think it was, and learn about three new numbers. So I wandered in there, and Bobby Thompson from King Size Taylor had joined them on bass by this time. And that was the day John Burgess arrived around as well to see what they had in the repertoire as um, a release coming up. And they, they played him a few things, and they, he wanted to hear One Way Love. Well, Bobby hadn't rehearsed it. So they asked me if I'd 
get in and play with it in the rehearsal then to give them an idea of what it was like. So I got in, we, we played One Way Love and that was it. And next thing I knew, One Way Love was uh, the new single. And we had six singles I'd recorded with the Rebel Rousers. And the, as soon as I left, they had their first hit. I think that kind of says something about me, doesn't it? <laughs> I go and find the kind of girl who thinks you're the only I die of the world. No more half-hearted kisses. That's bad enough. was in the charts at the same time as um, when you walk in the room, wasn't it? Was well, I think yeah, that got to number fourteen. Thankfully, when you walk in the room, got to number four. It should have got to number one. I mean, I'm I'm not bragging about my content, but the song it was a great song, and I think that's a great Searchers record. And the song was a number one hit song. It just should have done it. But we released it and immediately went on a world tour. We went off to America and across the country, across to Australia to a tour with the Rolling Stones. And by the time we got back, it was sort of run out of steam, really. It was so stupid because, I mean, it would have done a lot for me if it had made the number one. But still, I think that and Sweets for My Sweet, which I wasn't on, are the, my favourite Searchers records. But um, I'm glad Cliff didn't beat us in the charts at that time because that would have been looked a bit awful, wouldn't it? <laughs> you sang your lead on um, When You Walk in the Room, didn't you? That was the really nice effect. And Mike has conveniently forgotten that. <laughs> I don't I don't mind. I find it quite amusing. Um, no, he's, he's completely forgotten that we did a dual lead. It doesn't matter. What happened was I joined, it was Chris's idea that instead of just having Mike doing the lead voice, we would have him and me singing in unison and it would give a different edge and maybe a bit more power to the lead vocal. 
So that's what we did. Tony Hatch remembers it. Everyone else remembers it. And if you listen, Mike is very much as it should be forward in the mix. And you can hear my voice mainly in the first verse. In fact, all the band could hear it. They used to joke about it. They said I'd, I'd done a Moonlight thing, and, and when Tight Fit did a cover of it on something, the voice sounded like me, and they, they always used to say I'd, I'd actually done a Moonlight and, and was on the <laughs> cover of it, but it wasn't. But, um, yeah, I was in there and mixed into the background. I think it was uh, September 1964. You were off to America. This, uh, that was the first time I'd been abroad with the searchers. And yes, we recorded When You Walk in the Room. We pretty much went straight off on the plane to New York, across the country, joined up with Del Shannon and Eden Kane and Peter and Gordon in Honolulu, went via Fiji to Australia and New Zealand, and then back home on this world tour. There was a video of us made while we were out there in the um, in Sydney Harbour, so there's a little island in in the harbour, and they had us sitting down, live into when you walk in the room with a sailboat going across behind us and the opera house in the background, and they were used that on top of the pops a couple of times. It doesn't seem to have survived, I've ne- although it was film, not video. It, no, I don't think there's any copy of it anywhere around, which is a shame. Going back to um, the states, you were on the bill on. One of the greatest lineups of all time. It's incredible. Yeah, this is the Murray the K holiday show, and it was September 64. We did a week of shows at the Fox Theatre in Brooklyn. There were six shows a day, which astonishes people in England when they hear that. But that's how the Americans did their show, great big packages. They started at 10 in the morning, and they finished at 10 at night, and the kids could queue around the block, They could pay their entrance. They could stay as long as they wanted. They could catch two or three of the shows if they could manage to do that. But uh, Murray the K was very clever. After the live people did their shows, he had a film. It was something like Alibaba or Sinbad or something like that. And it's such a dreadful film that the kids couldn't stand more than two showings of that. So they would leave and other people would pay to get in. But the bill was amazing. Don't forget that Anyone from Britain was the big cheese at the time. So we were basically heading the bill. It was the Searchers, Millie, Dusty Springfield, Marvin Gaye, the Supremes, Martha and the Vandellas, Smokey and the Miracles, Temptations, the Contours, Little Anthony, the Shangri-Las, the Ronettes, Jane the Americans, the Dovells, and the New Beats. 42 shows straight off of that lineup. Amazing. I mean, to get that lineup now, you'd have to book Wembley Stadium. To get Marvin now, you'd put on Wembley Arena for him on his own, wouldn't you, these days?
Two things I love about the searches is how you were able to choose or find a song that wasn't necessarily that well known and, and make it your own. But also the sound of the group helped to shift the sound in the 60s bands like The Birds and then later on Tom Petty. One of those songs for me is uh, What Have They Done to the Rain? And in fact, thirdly, the lyrical element to that song. There's not many pop groups, certainly in 1964, were talking about ecological themes. No, that's true. And we did, we were advised by our office not to uh, go on about it when we were interviewed, sort of like hide it a little bit because they, they didn't want us to be controversial in any kind of way. I mean, it was very light um, protest, really, in, in, in light of the way things went. So maybe we should have said more about it. But we just did it actually because it's a lovely song. We've been doing it on the tour with Dion Warwick and the Isley Brothers and the Zombies. And the, it used to go down so well. In retrospect, it probably wasn't the ideal song to be a follow-up to When We Walk in the Room because it was a bit lightweight. Still very proud of the record. We still love the song, and it's still in every one of our shows these days. But we could have done with being a bit more up-tempo and aggressive in our choice of singles. But very proud of the record. And it has no 12-string no guitars in it, despite what everyone thinks. Chris Curtis, did he take that song to the group? Yeah, Chris was more or less the main person in choosing our material. And in his favour, he chose very, very well for some time. Um, Sweets for My Sweet, well, Sugar and Spice was put to by Tony Hatch, who actually wrote it. Uh, Needles and Pins was Chris's idea, so it was Don't Throw Your Love Away, so was Someday We're Gonna Love Again, which wasn't such a good single. And When You Walk in the Room, he chose to do again. And what have they done to the rain was this. And then we got into songs which probably, on reflection, we started making bad choices. Nothing to be ashamed of, but they just, you can see where the faults lie after that. Just a little rain falling all around. The grass lifts its head. Just a little rain, just a little rain. What have they done to the rain? 
Just a little boy Standing in the rain The gentle rain that falls For years And the grass is gone The boy disappears And rain keeps falling Like helpless tears And why Just a little breeze out of the sky The leaves not dead as the breeze blows by Just a little breeze with some smoke in its eye What have they done to the rain? Just a Goodbye, my love was a, another big hit, actually. I think top five. And what was the role Gene Pitney played in terms of assisting you with that song? He played it to Chris, I believe. A, re- a recording by Jimmy McHughes, I think. There were several. There was one like Jimmy McHughes. There was another American re- recording of it as well. And uh, we were very proud of it. We double-tracked the drums. We thought it was a great session. And it was. And again, we we put it in the show these days. but. Despite being, I think, a really, really good record, we could have done with something more in your face, something more up tempo, something more, I don't know, with some get up and go than, than a song like that at the time. But again, very proud of it. The production on that song is really, really nice. You could tell that you really made an effort recording it with the echo and that kind of thing. Yeah, we were pleased with it. It, it was very special. And it, it was nearly uh, ruined because. We were putting some vocals on, and this was before you had all the digital technology of today. And when we double-tracked the vocals, where you were going to double-track, the tape operator had to punch in exactly at that point, because if you didn't, and out again, it would erase what was on the original tape. And we were doing something in the middle eight, and the tape op, great young guy called Malcolm Eade, so his name is immortalized forever, pressed the wrong button at the time or didn't press the out button. I think that was it. And it erased about four bars of the backing track. And there was dead silence in the room. And Tony gently called him outside, obviously gave him a bollocking. And then he came back and he listened to the tape again. And he realized that the tape then had been stopped with enough time to edit the first middle eight into the gap and if you listen very closely where it goes into the middle eight there's a swoosh 
on the symbol, which is where those four bars have been put back in. But it was a hairy moment because it took out the drums, everything. We we spent all afternoon double tracking the drums. And uh, another top 10 hit here with the searches, and he's got no love. So that was written by Chris and Mike, but that's got a bit of a feel of the Rolling Stones to it. Yeah, what happened with that one was we were in a dressing room somewhere, obviously waiting to go on for a show. We've been listening to the Stones the last time, I think it was, they had released, and it had that um, tremolo phrase going through it. And John was messing out messing about with that phrase on his guitar. Then Mike joined in on, on a tinkle on his 12-string, and it sounded really good. It was very effective. Thought, what a great sound. And then Mike came to me um, later on. He said, uh, got together with Chris, and we I've done the tune, and he's done the words. What do you think about this? And, and he sang it. And we all thought it was great. So um, and we had nothing else in the can at the time. And Chris said to to be fair, Chris did ask us, we've got nothing else. Are you okay with putting this out as a single? 
And we thought Chris has got good judgment. We'll we'll put it out. But it really wasn't the right one. Again, not a bad song, not a hit single, but it was limited. When you compare the Hollies, for example, they were releasing some of the punchier material at the time. You know, I like Can't Let Go, for example, and, and many others. Well, they, they chose their songs much better. They really... They did keep a hold of their career very well. I mean, not just then, way into the 70s and, and 80s. All credit to them, they made a magnificent job of handling their record success. I think it was basically Tony Hicks would go around to all the publishers and get all the right demos, and he had a good ear for things like this. And Chris was our ear, and he'd kind of lost the plot a bit by that time. I'm not criticizing him. I couldn't have done any better. I would have done much worse. If they put it in my charge, the hits wouldn't stop way earlier, I think. I'm not sure. Let's got a live version of When I Get Home, which was at Sunday night at the London Palladium in September 65. We got an introduction by the actress Sarah Miles. You've got a story in your book about you having issues. Was it with your guitar lead yes. just before you were going on stage? First of all, Sarah Miles didn't seem to know who we were or what we did at all, really. And she said, the searchers have got their new record out called something, um, oh, When I Get You Home, baby. <laughs> like that. It's called When I Get Home. Anyway, so 
it was one of the first times we ever played live on television because oh. we had everyone mind of those days. You know, right through 64, we never played live on TV. It just, you didn't have the equipment to do it with. So we went on the Palladium and um, they got this new section in the show where there were a group of, a segment of three different artists who went round on the turntable for this part. And we were on one segment of the turntable and we got on this thing. I was plugging in. My lead wouldn't work. And the turntable was just about to go round. And I, I got our roadie, a guy called Barry Delaney, and said, quick, I haven't got a lead. And he dashed up to our dressing room, which is all about the first and second floor, and got out. And I plugged it in just as the turntable went round. And so the nerves were shot by that time. This is the biggest show in Britain. Exactly. And it was the first of the new series. So it went round and we sang. And I thought, this isn't happening. So it didn't sound very good. I'm sure I didn't think the balance was very good. And I thought, this is a disaster. And it was going out absolutely live. So there's nothing you could do about it. And I always lived under the impression that our spot had been a bit of a disaster. Suddenly discovered decades later that it had been recorded and it was there on YouTube. And I listened to it. And to be honest, the balance isn't that bad. But the song sounds quite good. It's not a hit song, really, and it didn't do well for us, but it was very respectable. And apart from one line in the middle eight where, not Chris's fault, someone had overbalanced Chris's solo line. Apart from that, the whole thing was balanced, balanced very, very nicely. So, um, you know, good on the people who were operating it at the time. But I'm quite proud of it. Surprisingly proud. We have the searchers with their new number, which is called... Um when I get you home, baby. <laughs> Something like that. There's gonna be good times, baby. Just wait and see. Music and parties and laughter like it used to be. Cause I'm coming back to make us alive. When I get home, when I get home, baby, five thousand miles from you, baby, is far I know. But just remember this, baby, wherever you go, I'm gonna love you and never leave you alone. When I get home.
the following year in 1966, you went on uh, a tour of uh, Australia and New Zealand with the Rolling Stones. That must have been quite an experience. Yeah, it was. We didn't start off there. We started off in Hong Kong, actually, not with the Rolling Stones. We went to do a couple of shows in Hong Kong. I think John managed to miss the train to go down to London. I had to get a later flight from Hong Kong, but him and Mike were always doing that, not getting there on the right train. Anyway, we made the shows in Hong Kong. Then we went on from there to the Philippines to do, um, I think it was about three days at the Araneta Coliseum out there, a huge, huge place where Muhammad Ali did his thriller in Manila. So that was wonderful, except that by that time, Chris had started ingesting all sorts of pills and things and whatever, and he was... He was behaving very, very oddly, and he was—he had distanced himself from the band. It's very sad because Chris was a truly lovely person. This should never have happened with us. Why didn't we all just get on? He was a great guy. You know, we never wanted this division, but he started behaving peculiarly. We were due to go on at this arena one night, and just about to announce this, Chris was nowhere to be seen. And we sent our roadie to find him. He wasn't in his room. And no one could find him, so we sent our roadie again. He went back to his room. He found Chris. He was sitting in a wardrobe with the door shut and his guitar writing songs, so, which was, uh, you know, shows you how things were going. Anyway, so we got him. We got on stage in time, did the show, went on from there to Australia to do the things with the Stones. And I think Chris was our drop in the charts, our lessening in status affected him quite badly, more more than it had the rest of us. And he was isolating himself. And I remember one night we were due to do a radio show and we were plugging, I think they wanted us to do what have they done to the rain on the show that night. Although when you walk in the room has been released back home, I think it was rain. And we were in the green room at the studio, just waiting to go on. And uh, a girl from the newspapers who was interviewing us said to us, is he all right? He was quite tottering on his feet. And Barry Delaney, our, our roadie, said, oh, no, it's all right. He's just being affected. And uh, with that, Chris plummeted to the ground, flat out on the floor, and we were horrible. And then we were announced. So we walked on and said to the three of us, and mine to what I assume was one of the done to the rain. Chris was carted off to hospital. We went back to the hotel, found his bag, and found all these pills and things and we flushed them all down the loo and uh, which Chris was not happy about he found some more very very quickly it was strange it was an odd time I say we were touring with the Stones I didn't really get to know the Stones on that tour except for Charlie and Bill who I all I got on very very well with Bose I spoke to Mick once or twice I don't know if I spoke to Brian. I can't remember it. We may have passed the odd word, but to be honest, they, they scared me, and we were going through drama. So, yeah, I didn't. I got not getting a lot of comments because we didn't really bond. They were staying at different hotels as us as well. They were under a different management. They were on a different scale, I suppose. They were probably getting a lot of money, and we weren't. I don't know. How long was it before Chris left the band and uh, John Blunt came in? Chris had left. Actually, I left the band by the time we got on the plane home from Australia. Oh, where he, you know, we tried to keep him in the band. He told he told us he was leaving. He would spend the rest of the time on that plane home, sending up poems to us at the other end of the plane, saying we should record this. Um, I'm going to produce records. And when we got home, we had to get in touch with Tito, our manager, and said, "Well, what do we do about this?" So we had a, a lunch 
of all of us, me, Mike, John, and Chris, and Tito Burns, to try and keep him in the band. But he was dead set. He wanted to be a producer. He was leaving the band, and that was it. Mike Rispoli, who was one of the management in our office, knew this kid from uh, from Croydon, which is where Mike lived, and uh, said um, he'd be good if you want to try him out. He was very much a Keith Moon kind of book drummer, not really Searcher style at all, but we took him on supposedly temporarily to, to bridge the gap because we had bookings in the things. we see how we got on. But he, in fact, he stayed three years. Uh, he was a nice guy, um, funny, very odd, really, hit me with the band, because we didn't even dress him in a suit at the time, because he looked like Keith Moon, and he, he bashed his drums around all over the place, so we let him dress casually. But he, he lasted with three years with us. Then he went on pills as well. It's something about us and drummers, and, and, and it wasn't pills. It was um, He was arrested for... Um, having cannabis, that's right. And the searchers, I mean, like, you know, we made Mother Teresa look like the old-time party girl, but there was our drummers, you know, dealing in noxious substances. It was very, very strange times, but we kept going. By 66 and into 67, a lot of the artists, even some of the more popular ones, they were getting into sort of psychedelia and some of them weren't taking drugs, but the music sounded like they were taking drugs. How did you sort of deal with that shift? Well, we weren't taking drugs and we didn't know much about psychedelia. We tried to let those influences get in, into our recordings and uh, get the kind of feel of that sort of thing. I think the uh, archetype of one of that at the time was Popcorn Double Feature, which was very um, psychedelic words. It was written by... Scott English and L Larry Weiss, I think. Um, it was a great record. I liked it. Didn't do anything for us, but uh, still a good one. To, I had a great bass part on that one as well. Very syncopated bass part that went right across the rhythm of the voice. That's so quite difficult to play. And uh, yeah, I, I enjoyed making it. But, you know, we'd begun our slide and the slide continued. But I was proud of the record. Frank, what are you doing on the recording scene at the moment? Recording. We're going in this month into the studios. We've got to record a new album because the last one did so well. And uh, also a new single, if we yeah. can get Th one out. This is good. Just... In spite of the fact you haven't had a sort of major hit single in a while, you found the album still go well. Oh, the last album did better than anything for a long while. Oh, that's tremendous. And uh, who produces all your records now? Tony Hatch produces everything. So he was responsible for the material on the latest single, wasn't Oh, yes, yes. Everything we've ever done. Mm. Although it is an American song. Uh, yeah, um, I don't know where Tony got it from. Um, he had it in his office one day. We listened to it and uh, weren't overstruck. It was among a batch of records. Then we listened to it a couple of months later and thought it was a great song. It grew on us like that. I think lyrically it's very good indeed. Do you not think it may be a little bit sort of way out for a, a British audience? Yes, yeah, very American slanted, the yeah. whole things, you know, popcorns and double features and all that yeah. and bag of his own, things like yes, that. It's very yes. American slanted. We've got big hopes for it in America. Good. Well, I hope you are lucky with We've it. We've got big hopes for it here as well, though. Well, sing it now, then. We will. There's love. 
much were you writing in that period um this uh, second-hand dealer your own material had you been writing for a bit i had well no we'd done mostly our b-sides chris started writing before the others and then we realized that the b-sides got as much money as the a-sides and so everyone wanted to write really i think very soon we you'll see the credits are for everyone so you know, John would write a song and we would all take credits. Mike would write a song, we'd all take credits. And Second Hand Dealer was mine. I wrote the tune and I wrote the words. Of which, again, I'm quite proud of the lyrics of that. It was the wrong song for the searchers. It didn't... God, it was a social slant on things. It was more kinks than searchers. You could have done them and it would have done... I suppose it would have done the faces as well, small faces, really. But it wasn't a searcher song, but I do listen to it, and I constructed the words very carefully. But although a lot of people probably didn't like it as a searcher song, and good luck to them, I don't blame them, I was very happy with how all the words went. Being a wordsmith, because I'm a writer, not a tunesmith, I'm very happy how everything, all the lines fitted and told the story right through to the end. So I'll give myself a pat on the back for the lyrics. I've read that um, a, a Swedish pop group called the Second Hand Dealers. Absolutely, yeah. We, uh, yeah, we, uh, it was one of our support bands in in uh, Sweden. Then we called the Second Hand Dealers. And again, it was Mike who came to me after playing with the Second Hand Dealers and said, "I like the name. I think we should write a song like that." I've written. Here's this tune. Do you want to write some lyrics? So he gave me the tune, and I wrote I wrote the lyrics to Second Hand Dealers. So the tune wasn't mine. The tune was Mike's. I, I won't take credit for something I haven't done. It's a great B-side on that. Crazy Dreams. Um, but John wrote it all the way through. That was one of his. Kind of a harder song, isn't it? And heavier. Yeah, well, we someone wrote the basics of the song, played it you know, in a rough demo version, and we would decide what kind of feel...
painted jug without a handle A torn and shabby faded rug He's a second-hand dealer Getting deeper into debt He's a second-hand dealer And he wants what he can get But he's broken like that handle His clothes are shabby like that rug He's a second-hand dealer Dragging rubbish up a stair He's a second-hand dealer Breathing heavy cause the air Trips on a bucket, knocks a cuckoo clock onto the floor. Leans on a table, which collapses and falls right into the door of a cupboard. Second hand dealer, with his eyes so dim dead. It was around this period that you left Pie and under the umbrella of Tony Hatch as well. Yeah, what happened was, uh, I think it was after Second Hand Dealer. We shouldn't have put out Second Hand Dealer as a, as a single. It wasn't good. Tony really should have had more control and be coming up with more stuff that he said, that he said this is definitely the right thing for you. But he'd been used to us having our finger on the pulse. You know, that we were... 
one of the new bands and we knew what was in the charts. But then that started slipping. Unfortunately, I don't think Tony came across with anything that was comparable to our earlier hits. And he let us have the say in something like Second Hand Dealer. After that one, he said, well, why don't we construct a song from the ground? I've, I was following a... Gosh, the stories he told us. He said, I was following a bus the other night and on the back was the its destination, Camberwell Green. So I've kind of written this tune about, and I think we should write a song called Camberwell Green. Although it sounded a bit like Camberwick Green. Anyway, it said Camberwell Green. We said, okay. So we started doing it, and he'd written this, but he was very much influenced by Burt Bacharach at the time as well. So he had written this tune. I can't even remember what the tune went like. But we started kind of building up some kind of backing track. And it went into a part where, like Bacharach did, he changed the, the meter. He changed it from 4-4 four, four to 3-4 or maybe even 5-4. I don't know what kind of time it was. But John Blunt uh, was having, I mean, he practically knitted his arms together trying to play this. It was impossible for him. And the whole thing collapsed in a heap. And I felt so sorry for John. And it didn't seem like a worthwhile project anyway. I never got the feel that it was a hit song of any kind. So we abandoned the session. And then we got together and thought, well, this isn't working anymore. Um, maybe we should go with someone else. And then Tito Burns, our manager, was going to put us with Tony McConaughey and John McLeod. And they were having real super hits at the time. And I had a meeting with them. And they said, oh, yes, great, Frank. We've got this song. This will suit you. And, and it was all going to go ahead. And then suddenly we got the word from the office, no, Tito doesn't want you to do that because if you do that, they want an extra 2% off your royalties. And we were only getting 4% royalties anyway. Um, so you know, I'm not having that. I'm going to take you off to off of Pi, and I'm going to put you with Liberty Records. He said, it's about time I invested some money into you. Those are Tito's words. Bear in mind that what he means is that I've got your contract from Pi, and now I own the contract, so I am in, I in fact own your record contract. And he sold us to Pi. If there was an advance, which I thought, I think there's bound to be, it never came to us. Um, so this was Tito being Tito. So we were put with Liberty Records. We read a couple of records. Pretty disastrous, no hits. I don't know what to say about the Liberty period. We made some couple of half decent things. Umbrella Man is uh, probably one of the better songs from that period. So at point, it could have been better. It could have been really good because it has a great feel to it. But for whatever reason, Kenny Young, who wrote it and who was given to us to be our producer, that he wrote Under the Boardwalk and Sand in wow. My Shoes. Lifters, he'd written it, but when it gets to the end of the verse, it goes into this stagger where there's claps that are fighting with the drums, and that John Blanc was going, and it, it's a mess. Why didn't they just stop that? Have the rhythm going right the way through an insistent rhythm that kept you involved in the whole record. If you've ever played it now, that bit. Killed the record totally. If ever it had a future, that certainly drove the knife in. It astonishes me at how bad that part of the record is. There you go. So were you um, having to sort of make your way on, on what is now known as sort of the, the chicken in the basket, the Batley Variety Clubs for Fiesta and... Or as I call it, my university education. 
because we were suddenly taken from being screaming teenage idols to playing to an adult audience who had to be entertained. You had to now present at least an hour of um, a cabaret show with um, you know the songs arranged in a nice light and shade kind of order. You had to introduce them in between, and that was that become my job. So I was learning all the time about how to present a show. I have to say that in those years, looking back, I'd stick my head under underwater and listen to it all now because uh, it must have been pretty bad the way I introduced it. It'd been really corny and, you know, chicken in the basket chat. But you learn all the time. And uh, it led me to know how to put together some introductions in a proper adult way that served us in great stead for the kind of two-hour shows that we do now. Although I can still find faults and think, God, you're so corny when you say that. You must really must stop it. But there you go. I've always been beating myself up about things like that.
you had about a year without a label. So what led you by the early 70s to sign with RCA? We'd have signed with the She's label if they'd have given us an offer at the time. We we weren't signed to anyone. Yeah, we, we'd, we'd been taken off Liberty. The, guys, the guy in charge at Liberty hated us. Uh, so then we were put on RCA because Richard Swainson, I think he was a, more a fan of Mike's voice as much as the searchers. And uh, he was put in charge of us at RCA. And uh, the main guy there, Mike, can't remember his surname now, he didn't like us at all. But uh, Richard Swainson had obviously persuaded him that it was a good thing. The good thing that came out of the RCA thing was uh, Solitaire. Our version of Solitaire is still great. But we did this awful album of Second Take, which was redoing all of the hits. Now, we got in a real trouble with RCA at that because Richard Swainson said to us, we've got to do those hits again for the company. It's important for them to have you on the label with all those hits. So we said, okay, we didn't want to do it at all, but we gave in. And then I was at a Bowie concert at the Rainbow and I, I ran into Mike, and I wish I could remember his name, it's in the book, from RCA. And I said hello to him and he was really... Really often he said, you lot caused us a real load of trouble putting that record out. We're being sued by PRT now, by Pi Records, who've got you under contract for uh, in perpetuity for those songs. And um, we've got, got to have a meeting about this. And uh, we had to sign over a portion of the royalties, which were nothing anyway, back to Pi. But we were getting in trouble for saying yes to the person who was handling this at RCA for something we didn't want to do. It was a very odd situation. Very bad. Shouldn't have happened. So how did you get a hold of uh, Solitaire then? Neil Sadaka was on RCA at the time, and he'd just written it. They gave us a copy of the record, which was with the intention of us doing one of the up-tempo tracks. I can't even remember which one it was. But we didn't like the up-tempo ones, but we loved Solitaire. And the, we did that one. And really, it's a great record. Mike sings it beautifully. Absolutely lovely record. And they released it. Nothing happened to it at all. Just died a death. And then six months later, Andy Williams did it. I don't think his record was any better than ours, if it was as good. Because I like Mike's voice better than like, uh, like Andy Williams. But he got to number one with it. It's just, you know, how much sway have you got? When, you, when, you're, when you're out of favour and you are out of favour, DJs wouldn't touch us at that time. Until it dies 
you still were able to produce some fantastic material that was equal of groups around the time and it's your song and a button very much of that crosby stills nash era and fits in very well yeah, I remember I was saying no, I don't want to use this in the interview because I I sang it and I don't I'm not a lead singer and the song is really awful. I was remembering my demo when I first played it to them and it's nothing like that. And on reflection, listening to it again, it's actually good. It's very very good. I, I was very pleased. So I'm I'm happy to put my name to that one again. When I first wrote it, it went with the sun and heard it all. And said, and I, I'd forgotten we'd done it like we did it, which was quite impressive. It uh, changed it. Really, the arrangement improved the song with that one. We've 
But we also, the one, the other one I like on RCA is Vahivala, which was um, this Kenny Loggins song. One of the Loggins did. I think it was on Loggins and Messina's album. So whether Jim Messina wrote it or whether Kenny Loggins wrote it, I don't know. But that is, I love that song and I love our recording of it. And there's a, a YouTube version of us doing it on They Sold a Million. And I've been looking at that lately. If anyone logs onto YouTube and watching it, with Vince Hill, who has just sadly departed us, he's introducing us. But I am wearing a fringe jacket which belonged to Arthur Conley. He was my neighbour in the, the apartment block that I was living at at the time, and I borrowed his jacket for the song. I wish I'd have kept it. I'm thinking about when I was a sailor, spent my time on the open sea. When we stay off the coast of Jamaica, and seriously steal it sure Ain't up the word
So as we move into the late 1970s, the wonderful albums that you did with Sire, which took you to a, a whole new audience. And uh, one of the great singles of the era, I don't know why it wasn't a top 10 hit in the UK and the US, and it's Hearts in Her Eyes. It's one of the great singles of what is now known as Power Pop. Absolutely. I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. That whole period, the two albums, they are the best recordings we've ever done. You can't compare them to the original Searchers recordings, even though they were done on two-track, because they are of an era, and they had that boyish enthusiasm, and they were right. It's like getting Elvis to do his stuff again in 16-track in or something. Don't do it. What you did originally was great. The Sire records outside that period were just the best recordings we'd ever made. And there are about half a dozen on those two albums that had we done those following When You Walk In The Room, we would have been in the charts for the next decade. Yeah, because it's got that punchy element that you feel was potentially missing. It was The Searchers brought into the 80s. Hearts in Her Eyes is The Searchers song, but brought right up to date. Um, it's Too Late was The Searchers, so it's great. In things like Almost Saturday Night and... So, so many good things. I can't say enough about them. I, I could happily play them today. Because it must have been quite a punt in a way that someone believed in you, earning a good living, but you weren't a contemporary recording act. Who was it that thought, let's bring the searchers back? There was a meeting in um, Paris, I believe, of a group of the um, recording people. There was Seymour Stein, who was the boss of Sire Records. He formed Sire Records. He'd signed Talking Heads, Flaming Groovies, Madonna, the Ramones. You know, and he was talking, they were sitting around talking with Rob Dickens, who was with Warners at the time, and with Paul McNally, who was one of working with Sire Records. And uh, somehow our name got mentioned, and Seymour was a great fan. And he said, well, who are they signed to? They said, well, they haven't got a record contract. He said, they haven't got a record contract. Why don't we do something about it? So I went up town for a meeting with Seymour, and the, he came down to see us at um, a club in the South End, I think it was, and again at another place in the West Country. And um, they thought we were two cabaret at the time, which is quite true, but, you know, we were playing where we could get an audience. There's no... No use in not being cabaret if the audience you can pull in is cabaret. So we were being sensible. Anyway, they, they got that out of the mind and said, yeah, we can do it. Let's go for it. And that's, when it, that's what happened.
And Sire kept safe with you for a few years. And uh, again, another great single, which I, I don't know why wasn't a hit. And this time, a bit of a sort of harder edge. Again, uh, one of John's songs, Another Night. Of course, yeah, totally John's song. Again, that's what I'm saying. We all got, we all shared credits on those things. But John wrote it. It's his tune and his lyrics as well. So he was very much, he was writing songs off his, his kind of style, which is very much funky. That's very much like, kind of got echoes of Martha and the Muffins, Echo Beach, you know that one? Yeah. That's that kind of feel. Really good. Again, one of those where I got more fond of it as I played it in retrospect. And you were still doing some big shows in the 80s. There's a couple that stand out for me. There was uh, the Roll Variety Show in the early 80s, and then at the end of the 80s, there was uh, Wembley Stadium with Cliff Richard. That's great. The uh, Royal Variety Show came by Tim Rice. He was put in charge of putting a... Uh, a segment which was British pop through the ages, and he wanted us to be on it. Well, we were that that clashed with a tour we were in Sweden, and uh, Tim had rung up Mike, and Mike told us that we can't do it. We're in Swiss, right in the middle of the Swedish shore. And John, being John, said, "Hang on a minute, this is the Royal Variety Show. Let's not say we can't do it." Got onto our office and said, "Can you sort this out?" We had to cancel a, a day or maybe two concerts in Sweden. We paid our own fares for ourselves back from Sweden and back there again to do the Royal Variety Show. So doing that show cost us a fortune, but how could you turn down the Royal Variety Show? It was, it was fantastic. Great. And the other one, the event at Cliff, the uh, Wembley Stadium, again came about by accident. I used to do the gym in uh, the 80s. This was in 1988. I was doing the gym at uh, the David Lloyd Club in Heston, and Cliff used to play tennis there. So we, we would pass. We'd just say hello every now and again if he felt like it, you know. And, uh, and I didn't know I wasn't really a, a friend. So well, one day I'd finished the gym. I sat down at the uh, refreshments bar, the tea bar there, and he'd finished his tennis. He sat down with his pals. And he said, "What?" Uh, talking about the bands and things, he said, what are you doing next uh, June? I said, well, I have no idea. This was in the middle of June 88. I said, well, no idea. And he said, well, I'm thinking of taking over Wembley Stadium for my 30th anniversary. It would be nice to have all our old friends with us. I thought, well, our old friends? He talked about me. I don't even, I don't know him really at all. I'm still just sort of like, sir. So I said, well, do let me know if you're going to do it because uh, I'm sure we can organize something. So when it was eventually announced, probably at the beginning of 89, I think, I got into Alan Field, our agent, and I, I told him this story. I said, and Cliff said he wanted us on it. Now, that's probably just talk because we ran across each other, but it's worth checking out. So he got on to the office. Yes, they said, yeah, great, come on the show. And that was it. We, we did it. And it was fantastic, just amazing. Although, again, we had another one of those curious incidents because it, it was so big, they had to take over a second night as well. So we didn't just get the one night, we got the next night. 
Unfortunately, on the next night, we were booked to play at the Mersey View in Frodsham, which is up by Liverpool. Didn't used to go on till about 11 o'clock, but we were booked to play up there. And we tried to get out of it. They wouldn't let us out of the contract. So in the end, we had to do our bit, our two songs on the show at Wembley, and then we had to jump in the car and dash up the M1 and the M6 up to Frodsham to do another show out there. And there was a huge traffic jam as well that day. And it really took the shine off because we wanted to be backstage and ligging them because backstage was where the fun was. And we missed out on all that just because we have to play. I mean, Frodsham is a nice place to play, but, you know, when you can be at Wembley Stadium knocking around with all the stars, then that's where we'd rather be. Thank you. In the, the mid-80s, uh, Mike left. He'd obviously been thinking about it for some time. and uh, This was in 85. We were doing a, a tour up in Scotland 
we used to stay at the promoters, a guy called um, Robert Pratt. We used to stay at his family house and they'd feed us and everything. Well, for, on this occasion, we were doing a tour up there and oh, the others were staying in B&Bs and I was staying at the house and going to the shows with Robert Pratt in his car. And one, one night he said to me, I should tell you something. Can you keep a secret? And I said, yeah. He said, you sure you can keep a secret? I said, yeah, absolutely. He said, Mike's leaving the band. I said, thanks for that. You know, so I thought, what do you mean? He told me that Mike had told him he was leaving the group and and he wanted to see if he could handle getting some shows for him, things like that. And so I'd then been told this and I had, couldn't tell anyone. And I'm a man of my word, you know. So you imagine what I was I was like for the rest of the week. And then we were after we finished this week, we were going on a holiday. So I was going off to Spain. So I went I was at Cantwick Airport and I phoned up John to see to, to check out before I went away. He said, I've got some bad news. Mike's leaving the band. I thought, Bloody I know. He said I said, I had a call from a club saying, I hear you're splitting up. And the searchers don't exist. And I've got a book, Mike Pender and the New Searchers now. And John said to him, no, 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 it's just a reset. We're just on holiday. So he put the photo, got a call from another club saying, I hear the searchers are splitting up and you resist the new searchers. And John said, I, I think I better make a phone call. So he phoned up Mike and said, um, is this true? Mike said, yes. He said, well, don't you think we should talk about this? And apparently Mike said to John, We'll talk about it at the next show and put the phone down on him. So that's how bad it was. And of course, it was true. And uh, from then on, it was us and him, really. Very bad atmosphere. It's terrible. But we had to retrench. In the end, it did us a lot of good in that way. I mean, it's never advisable to change a member of the band, even when I joined. The ideal lineup is the first one, and then you change, and maybe it'll get better, maybe it won't. And when Mike left, we got Spencer in. And in fact, we dug our heels in put money into the show, learned how to pro. We got lights in and confetti cannons and things. We, we went for the kill because we were dealing with our livelihood. And we went into the most financially and aesthetically re rewarding period of our career for decades and decades. So it gave us a kick up the behind that we needed. But it was a frightening time. We, we didn't know if we'd survive or not. And I wanted to include a song from the album that you did with Spencer in, in the lineup, um, uh, Hungry Hearts, which I think was on a German label in the late 80s. And there's a, there's a song off there that has become a bit of a, a staple of the searchers. Somebody told me you were crying. So that's become a bit of a, a bit of a standard now. That's really, yeah, it's such a great song. Virtually always gets to the show. We had found it on an 86 tour of America. Um, it was by a group called The Allies, I think it was, a Christian rock group and it, the demo wasn't really very good at all but we saw the potential rearranged it but in the end we owned the recording we paid for the recording but so we owned this master which we couldn't do anything with and uh, when they put together the hungry hearts album we asked them to put this one on as well to give it some credence and to make it a good album so that's what happened but it wasn't recorded for the hungry hearts session To 
see the joy come back into another's arms and here you are you're in my arms like I said that you would do and when the stone of pine When death would rule no more And you and I Would meet again But the only thing that Troubled me was So loud and told me You're crying So to close with a live version recorded about 15, 16 years ago of Mr. Tambourine Man. So as you say, with Spencer, you embarked over 35, coming to almost 40 years of being able to tour around the world very successfully and uh, being able to bring those amazing songs uh, to the public. Yeah, we've had a great career for the last 37 years with Spencer. You know, you're going from one period to the other. Can't, you can't compare. It's like comparing eggs with bananas. You know, it's, that's a different product, although we obviously have to do our hits and we are, we'd be mad not to or we wouldn't want to. We're proud of them all. But we have had a great, great time. And as you know, we've been touring again. We did a comeback tour, which was one of the most 
pleasurable things I've ever done. We left on not a good note. It was a, it was a bad time when we decided to retire at the beginning of 2019. It, it was a, left us sort of downer, really. But then four years later, we'd started being in communication again, particularly John and I, and it was all set up. We we all agreed we'd we'd love to do another another tour. We did the comeback tour, which was fantastic. And we all had so much fun that we are doing more dates now. Next year, in 2024, a section of 28 new dates are coming out. We finished this last slot where it should have finished the last time, in Liverpool, where it all began. We finished at the Philharmonic Hall. It was an epic night. I can't tell you. There is no other word to describe it. Standing with our hands in the air, and the whole audience with their hands up in the air, showing what a, an incredible night it was. So things yeah, have been going very, very well for us. And we're so glad we did that tour. We weren't, we had no intention of doing any more. We thought, well, we've finished in Liverpool, that's it. But then the pressure was on. People who we didn't do Scotland, there's no Mona like Mad, there were other places we wouldn't do. But honestly, because we had such a great time, everyone felt God, I, if it's going to be this much fun, let's try and please those people and do it again. But we didn't want to compete with Liverpool. So we aren't having a big place to finish. Uh, we're finishing in Dudley Town Hall, actually. I've, I've been saying this. If there is one that shows going to stand out, I have a feeling it's going to be the Royal, Royal Concert Hall in Glasgow because we played that before and it is a wonderful, wonderful place. The atmosphere is great. So we'll see how we get on with that. But we're really looking forward to it. And... Uh, I think that's got to be it, isn't it? You go, how many? I mean, if you know, if we if we do any more, we'll have to put my way in the show, won't we? <laughs> Information on that or is on uh, the hyphen searches dot co dot uk. We opened at the start talking about your books, including the Searches of Me: A History of the Legendary Sixties. And as Pete Townsend attests, <laughs> you're one of the great figures of that era, and your memory, despite what you say, is amazing details of some of the great times in music history. Thank you so much for your time, Frank. It's, it's been an honour to talk to you. Well, thank you for letting me uh, tell the story. I know there are people who love to hear this, and it keeps them interested throughout however long we're going to go on for. We've always tried to mix with our fans and and, uh, and please them, and uh, it's shows like this that keeps the faith. Thank you for having me on. Take care. Bye now.
Thank you for listening to the Strange Brew Podcast. If you do like the show, please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online. It's 10 years since I started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time. All your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests. To support me, just go to thestrangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the homepage. Thank you very much. Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you.